Zach Servideo here with Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Rowan Walworth. Uh, Rowan Walrath. Um, Walrath. <laughs> We're off to a hot start. Yes, yes. I'm the staff writer at yeah. Boston now. So Rowan Walrath. Um, <laughs> I went to school with the Mike Walworth. So, really? So that's probably why I said yeah, Walworth. That'll uh, do it. And I'm not one for like cutting out my mistakes. You know, I think it's it's important to own them, Boston. So I'm going to fix it again, Rowan Walrath. Yes. All right. Awesome. What kind of name is that? Um, I actually do not know. I think it might be German, um, which is where my dad's side sort of extends back into. Okay. Uh, But in any case, something European. Interesting. Yes. When do you know when your family came over to America? On my dad's side, I actually have a history that goes really quite far back, which I feel very lucky to have access to. There's a really long document that goes back to the, I believe, 1720s. And that is when um, an ancestor on my dad's side came to New York, back when New York was like a um, a Mm. British colony. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, on my mom's side, I have no idea, um, with the exception of Russian heritage. You mentioned 1720s and I'm immediately reminded of when my daughter was born and you realize you can read anything to an infant as long as you're reading, like Mm -hmm. you feel like you're like, you know, doing something positive, but I read the George Washington biography. Did you really? Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, 1720s. Washington's young, but he's alive. Americas are an interesting place to be. What, like, no, like, revolution was around the corner, but so far away. Yeah. Uh, great. So, you're, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you're, you're from a, you're from north of Houston, which mm-hmm. is, we just discovered, um, before we went live, actually, same community as, uh, one of Fabric Media's newest members, mm-hmm. uh, Jason Miracle. It's called the the Woodlands. The Woodlands, yeah. Texas. Yes, it is um, a master planned community. It is unincorporated. Um, its structure is unusual. Um, it worked when I was growing up. Now I'm sure you know I don't live there anymore and haven't for many years. Um, but the Woodlands is actually the largest, um, or rather, the fastest growing metro area in the United States. And that's been the case for many years now. Um, So it'll be interesting to see Hmm. how things shake out. There are other nearby cities um, and annexation has been discussed a couple of times, but I don't think that the Woodlands residents have any desire to be annexed at this time or potentially ever knowing them. (laughs) Interesting. What is it about the the infrastructure or like, is it sprawling that, that 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 it's able to so quickly grow. Oh yeah. I mean, urban sprawl is exemplified in all of the greater Houston area. Um, there isn't a body of water or a mountain range or anything like that. That's really stopping it Mm -hmm. from growing. Mm -hmm. And so it can just spread out along messes of highways and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, which isn't great because, that also means that the city has been building on floodplains when they shouldn't, mm. which became a huge problem during Hurricane Harvey. Wow! So a good amount, a good amount of your hometown was it was it impacted by that? Uh, yeah. Yes, it was. I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe northwest parts of the town um, were impacted. Luckily, my family was not at all, um, which is kind of amazing, but. My my dad put it at the time. Everybody knew somebody who had mm-hmm. three feet of water in their home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was actually a really surreal experience when that was happening. I was living in Boston, and I was working at the Boston Globe. And the idea was there's this enormous natural disaster unfolding in the United States right now. What is the local angle? I mean, that's always the question for local mm-hmm. media, right? Mm-hmm. And so Massachusetts, um, they deployed um i'm trying to remember because this was so far back but the local red cross deployed people down there um and also over to florida and over to puerto rico because it was a horrible hurricane season um and massachusetts also deployed um like state 
employees, first responders um, who headed down there. And so I was writing these stories, right, where I'm like talking to these first responders and I'm rewriting, um, or not rewriting, but writing based on press releases Mm -hmm. from the state. And the whole time, I'm like, this is my hometown that's being impacted. And here I am. And you're writing about it from Boston. And I'm writing about it from Boston. I'm writing about it for a Boston audience. I'll say that. And I'll say it for you. That's a bit of a mind fuck. It was, yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> it was really odd. I mean, I'm, I'm like looking around the newsroom and I'm kind of like, I don't. Huh. Of course, these people care. Yeah. I hope. They probably do. But for um, you. It, but for me, it's a whole other kind of yeah, connection. There's yeah. a level of emotional connection that you can't ignore yeah um yeah and it's it's really kind of strange when i see when i see streets flooding i'm not like impacted but when i look at um like satellite imagery of huge patches of rain or of a hurricane forming in the atlantic or in the gulf of mexico it takes me back to that time when i was so glued to the weather reports and everything i mean it was really it was bizarre Mm. So I imagine this may in part feed some of your interest in sort of clean tech, green tech as, as something that you're interested in sort of following. Um, in part, everything is connected, yeah. right? When yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah. about climate change, climate yeah. change is the reason that natural disasters that have happened forever, like hurricanes are so, so, so much worse than they would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. So it's, it's all interconnected. Yeah. So back in Woodlands, did you write for the school newspaper there in high school? Was that the first time you started yeah. writing? It was kind of funny, actually. I did not ever take the journalism class at my high school. It's uh, cool but, you but, had one. Yeah, no, it was yeah. great that I had yeah. one. Um, so by the time senior year rolled around, I was kind of like, I really like writing. Wonder what I could do with that. And then I was like, sure. oh, duh, like we have a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but I, according to the rules, I wasn't allowed to write for the newspaper because I had not taken the journalism class. However, All the rules. <laughs> I had several friends who were on the editorial staff. And so I was like, hey, what can we do here? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, you can write for us. We'll just cool. call you a contributor. Nice. I was like, great. And I contributed to every issue throughout the school year. Um, I definitely did not learn <laughs> the basics of journalism through that experience, mm-hmm. aside from the, you know, the, the who, what, when, where, why, and the um, reverse pyramid kind of thing. But I didn't learn about conflicts of interest. At one point, I covered an event that I planned <laughs> for the Math Honor Society. And in retrospect, I'm like, why did anybody let me do that? Mm. But I didn't know, you know. Must have got glowing reviews. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's, really, that's really interesting. So you started um, writing for your school newspaper and, and in the pre-podcast questionnaire, mm-hmm. I think you mentioned an article you wrote for the school newspaper about mental health or sort of the mental health ecosystem failing young people. So that was for my college paper, okay. um, the Huntington News at Got Northeastern it. University, which I still have so much love for. Um, <laughs> they're a independent nonprofit weekly paper. They're actually registered as a 501c3 and they have an advisory board and everything. They operate independently from the school and don't receive any funding from the school. Okay. And so it was really like working for a hyper local weekly paper. Um, it was an amazing experience, but yeah, I think it must've been, um, my second year writing for the Huntington news. And were you there all four years? Um, I did not, Right for the Huntington News my freshman year of college because okay. at that point I hadn't figured out that that was what I wanted mm-hmm. to delve into really. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I did start writing for the Huntington News, which was the summer before my sophomore year, I delved in pretty quick. I think I only wrote three actual articles before I was asked to come on as city editor. Nice. And then I was city editor for a year, managing editor for a year, opinions editor for a year, and then... My last semester of college, because I did four and a half years, ultimately, um, I did not have any official role, um, but I was also the only person who knew how the website worked. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I was sort of the de facto web editor, and then I trained a person who came on after me. Cool. Yeah, I liked that you mentioned a bit about this in the in the pre-podcast interview about sort of the importance of like really getting into like, how, like marketing 
journalism and, mm-hmm. and, and communicating and making sure, you know, it's one thing to write a story. It's another thing to get it out. I listened to, um, and you mentioned Kara Swisher as mm-hmm. one of the inspiring figures in your, in your life. I was listening to her colleague, Peter Kafka, Rico Media, talking to Taylor Lorenz, mm-hmm. who's at the Atlantic now. Who's, she's great. She's, she's coming to Cambridge yeah. later this year. She's going to be a Neiman fellow. I think starting next month. That's amazing. So you should catch her. <laughs> uh, we should definitely catch yeah. her. She, I would, I put this out on Twitter today, just like <laughs> after I completed the podcast that I was slowly listening to through the weekend while chasing around my two-year-old. Um, probably the best at writing about the internet as the internet relates to communication, like yes. with, with regards to communication platforms and truly getting it. And you know, she was an early Tumblr user and, you know, kind of went into journalism in a non-traditional way. My point in bringing her up is what she talks about on, on the podcast with Peter Kafka is the incredible importance she puts on thinking about how she's going to market an article while she's writing it. Interesting. Yeah. And then not so much to say that it's like changing, like the important, like, um, you know, it, it doesn't change like the facts or the, or, or the, or the plot points, mm-hmm. but the, the structure of the article and um, just thinking about all the ways and how it can be piecemealed out across platforms and communicated to, you know, cause part of a journalist's job is to be getting attention on the article um, is very much she's, something she's bullish on. So that's just ringing through to me um, coming into my conversation with you, which I'd love to sort of um, hear your thoughts on. Like when I, you know, you're in a staff writer position right now at Boston. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've had many editor positions, as you just mentioned in the past. And it seems to me like a modern, what, like whether you're a modern editor or writer, but wearing the hats like you have worn so well. My bet is that you probably have some interesting tips and insights on how you feel your role is in thinking about the story and thinking about the story sort of vis-a-vis this fragmented community of audience that you want to get it in front of because it's not just putting it up on bostonon.com oh yeah so can you unpack that a little bit yeah i'll try to um and at boston we do distribute our content through social channels um twitter facebook linkedin we have an instagram as well but it's less of a way of marketing our content than it is of fostering a different kind of community right where it's like oh here's the things that we're interested in and it's national donut day we went and got iced coffees and here we are holding it like i don't know very cutesy very instagram but it's fun um relatable exactly yeah, well yeah. And during boston fest yeah. on okay. august 1st yeah. people were all over instagram like companies were posting their stories and tagging us and i was um in charge mostly of the instagram story that night actually so i was sharing everybody's posts and interacting and it was fun it was i think that's sort of a a place on instagram is where we can throw a party online yeah. right? right it's, on. it's yeah. just a total different kind of experience than you get on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, Agreed. But in addition to all the social channels, our actual main channel for distribution is our newsletters. And as you know, of course, mm-hmm. Boston now has um, three newsletters. There's the beat um, there's in the know. And then there's our top post newsletter, which just goes out once a week. The beat goes out every single weekday. Um, and I'm in charge of curating and writing that, which I really love. And the reason that I love it is not just because, you know, I have this kind of editorial agency over it, but because our audience, which is large, it's almost 23,000 subscribers now, um, we're getting so close to actually pushing the 23K mark. Mm -hmm. Um, But our audience is really engaged. I mean, people reach out to me all the time. They respond to me. Um, People love seeing the seagull updates. And they also love reading about... And tech news and our funding rounds that we cover. And last week I covered this new um, architectural exhibit at the BSA space in the financial district that covered sort of the convergence of urbanism and new technologies. And people loved it, you know, Um, and it's really cool to be able to have people respond directly to me and yeah. They do, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned once, like, that we get bagels in the office on Wednesdays, and someone responded and was like, I could really use a bagel this morning. Yeah. I was like, couldn't we all? Yeah. 
Yeah, participatory media. Um, is And it's one of the things I love about Bostino. It's like I've loved about Bostino for a while. And I could see like it's it's interesting to have this conversation at this time because I've actually even noticed like a bit of the just that authentic voice of Bostino like ring through on social. And, and, I, <laughs> and it's nice to put a face to the name to the person that's that's been helping spearhead that. Um Taylor, uh, Taylor Lorenz again mm-hmm. at the Atlantic. She, she mentioned she was, she's very bullish on Instagram over all others yeah. and also TikTok. And she's doing this interesting thing where she's even like saying, some, you know, share with me your best TikToks. Like she's curating TikToks on Instagram and she's building audience mm-hmm. on Instagram and she's pulling audience from Twitter to Instagram. And she's really trying to per, like, she's saying, you know, DM me if you have tips on Twitter, but like, if you want to, if you want to like, like, engage and communicate and and have fun and have you know let's participate in experiences it's happening on instagram one other thing that she said which is was kind of refreshing for me and you might have noticed this over the weekend again in between times where i was chasing around my two-year-old uh she was like you know instagram used to be this place where everything's got to be pristine and you got to put the perfect picture and like it always kind of bothered me and like you know like oh is this picture instagram worthy and she's like yeah she's like screw that She's like, honestly, like, you know, life is imperfect and, you know, it's important to like, sh-. so I, I've actually very recently been taking a different approach, even for like Boston Speaks Up, you know, a sister brand of Boston, like on Instagram, just mm-hmm. sharing different types of visuals that just kind of express ways people maybe have been interpreting the Boston Speaks Up podcast as a visual on Instagram, it's like a fun creative challenge, but it's also create, and then people are responding and it's like exciting um, and I'm also noticing Instagram just in general as like a traffic driver now, like the, you know, ever they've gotten a lot better at, um, you know, featuring links and, and driving out of Instagram and, you know, simply put at the end of the day for media, like it's important that you can help sort of captivate and pull audience into your own properties. And, and, uh, I just noticed even through the weekend, like just participating in Instagram a little bit, I was like, Oh, wow. Like, uh, SoundCloud numbers are going wild for the podcast. Like, thanks Instagram. Like, that's pretty cool. That's great. And you can like, you can take a sound, you know, you can take SoundCloud uh, audio and, and, you know, tag it into your Instagram stories. And it's, it's really interesting what they're doing with stories. Um, so yeah, so we'll have to talk more offline about all the sorts of ways that we can have fun together, um, creating digital experiences on Instagram in particular. Absolutely. So what was it that drew you to Northeastern specifically and you know, to Boston? Mm-hmm. And obviously you've stayed, which makes <laughs> me really happy. Um, well, I, I left yeah. and came back, yeah. actually. That's we'll, right. We'll yeah. get to we'll, that. We'll get to that. <laughs> you, you, the gravitational pull. I've yes, left and co- I, I, I say I stayed, but then also like, oh, yeah, minus five years out in L.A. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you're here and you know, you've been out in San Francisco and actually that's funny because one of your, one of the points you made in the, in the pre-podcast interview was that you were really seeking out an opportunity to write about tech and innovation, Mm -hmm. not in the Valley. Yeah. Which also was refreshing to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, so first just talk, talk to Boston about what drew you here. Um, and maybe get get into some of that, some of between graduating from Northeastern, being at Huntington News, and now being at Boston O, where you ventured off to, and and where you bylined in particular mm-hmm. when you were at in San Francisco, and then what pulled you back to to Boston. It's low key my life story, but Let's I'll go. launch into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I I grew up in the Woodland side lived there my whole life. Um, we only made one move and it was from one side of town to the other side of town when I was six years old. And so by the time that I was maybe halfway through high school, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be staying there. And I didn't really want to stay in Texas either. Uh, I wanted to experience something totally different. If you look back at old, um, like social media posts that I made at the time, which were almost like a public diary entry during Mm -hmm. that period before we all got a little bit more private. Um, I said that I wanted to experience a culture shock, something that was completely different from the place that I had spent my whole life living in. Mm -hmm. And Boston was, I think it was the first major city aside from Houston that I had spent any time in. Um, I was planning on applying to Northeastern and also to Boston University, 
And my mom and I came and visited, I believe it was October of my senior year. I'm not sure, but it was, it was mid October in mm -hmm. Boston mm -hmm. and I had never seen leaves change colors before. Oh, yeah. And I think I was just spellbound. Um, it was, it was totally incredible. Um, the best month. Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, honestly, yeah. another, another reason that I wanted to leave Texas was I wanted to experience seasons. Sure. That was literally a yeah. bullet point that I needed to check off. Sure. Um, cause I mean, Houston is, it's warm and it's humid and it's temperate, um, temperate to hot. Um, most and, of the year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there's not going to be snow and there's not going to be changing colors and there's only a couple of flowering trees. Um, and I visited Boston and it was just, it was everything that I could have dreamed of. It was like something out of a postcard, honestly. And then Northeastern offered me a full tuition scholarship. And so that basically cemented there you it. Go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, went to Northeastern, spent four and a half years there. During that time, I was, as I mentioned, in a couple different editorial roles in the Huntington News. Um, I also completed a handful of co-ops. I'm pretty sure that most people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with Northeastern's co-op program, mm -hmm. but it's essentially a six-month full-time, in most cases, full-time, there are some part-time co-ops, um, internship. Um, companies will have a partnership with the school, and students will go through a portal that Northeastern has set up and go through a whole interview process. There are co-op advisors that actually will guide students through the interview process. I mean, it's basically like a job search, but with nets beneath you in case you fall. Um, so it's good training really. Yeah. Um, but my, my two co-ops were both at National Geographic Learning, which is a subdivision of Cengage. Um, which is a textbook publishing company. Yeah. I was always interested in education and distribution of information. And to me, to this day, the main difference in how journalism accomplishes that versus textbooks is just speed, right? <laughs> and it can be really difficult to measure the influence that you're having as, say, a textbook editor. Um, I did like my experience at National Geographic Learning, um, but journalism was what I was more passionate about ultimately. And my last year in Boston before I left for San Francisco. So this was essentially my senior year of college. And what year was this? So this was um, 2017. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So throughout that calendar year, that was my last year of college. That fall of 2017 was yeah. right before I graduated. Um, I had a couple of real journalism experience. As I say real, it was like paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was. yeah. 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 Um, Doesn't get much more real than that. Like, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So that was my first professional journalism experience. Um, I started working part-time at the Boston Globe city desk in April of 2017. And at about exactly the same time, I started a summer internship at the Dorchester reporter, um, which is a truly amazing um, neighborhood weekly paper covers all of Dorchester, which is Boston's largest and most diverse neighborhood. And there was just so much going on all the time. And the people there are fantastic. And I, I loved that experience. Um, I love being at the Globe as well. And I was at the Globe from April through the beginning of December mm. 2017. Yeah, That's a good chunk of the year. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so that was, as I mentioned, there was, of course, the Harvey coverage. But there was also, yeah. you know, breaking news, crime, fire. Um but I also had a chance to cover a couple of small features. Um, so, for example, there was a youth conference that was put on by the group Teens in Print, um, where basically all these high school students got together for a conference that they had put together themselves. And they talked about, like, very real deep issues in, I think, more nuanced ways than adults even can sometimes. They talked mm. about LGBTQ rights, um, especially in schools. They talked about immigration um, because at that point it was Donald Trump's first year in office. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really inspiring to see these yeah. young people come together. Um, and I was really glad that I had the opportunity to write about that for the Boston Globe. Um, and then the fall of 2017, I also had a part-time internship at Boston Magazine where I mostly wrote for a health and wellness section. Okay. Um, which was where, in fact, I 
first had the experience of doing a little bit of science journalism because I was able to write about really fascinating research coming out of Mass General, coming out of MIT, mm. coming out of other fabulous mm. research institutions here yeah. in the Boston area, which I've luckily been able to continue here now at Boston now. Yeah. All, all of which could only use more and more mm-hmm. coverage. It's insane the amount of things coming out of the just the science community alone oh, in yeah. the city. I what know. an interesting beat. Yeah. Um, so did you, do you, you were very, did you feel like a gravitational pull towards, towards science? Like even as you were kind of thinking toward San Francisco, like, is that, was that pulling you toward like science? Like, was that, was that a pull towards innovation a little bit or um, disruptive technologies? As a writer and a reporter, a lot of the pull was being able to take these very technical and complex topics and distill them for a wider audience. Mm -hmm. Um, What interests me even now is taking the innovations that are happening in prestigious research institutions Mm -hmm. and bringing them to a broader community, not audiences in the case of journalism, but to consumers, mm-hmm. right? And so I am always fascinated by the... There are some incubators, there are some institutes that are fully designed to take things out of the academic lab and into the consumer world. Bring them commercial. Yeah, yeah exactly. But bringing product commercial, and you were interested mm-hmm. in bringing store like science and deep tech deeply technical topics commercial from a uh audience sort of comprehension standpoint help yeah, help, well, the, help well, the community yeah. understand the things that were transforming in science at, at if the, the new york times rule is what at a you know at maybe a, a sixth grade level you know so that really yeah. really make sure that pe- you know the common man and woman can understand it. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, technology and, and science and innovation permeates our everyday lives, whether we're realizing it or not. And people need and deserve to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually thinking about this last night because a friend of mine replied on Twitter to a tweet by the editor-in-chief of Wired. Mm-hmm. Um, and the editor-in-chief, his name is Nick, he had tweeted out a link to a recent Wired article about um, a technique that hackers were using to take over smart TVs. And my friend had commented and said, hey, would this affect my Roku? I'm not really technical-minded, and it's not clear in the article. And I was kind of like, huh, wonder if I can answer that. I went into the article, I read through everything, and I was like, even myself reading this article, I can't immediately answer whether she has the owner of a Roku TV should be worried. Mm. And that's a problem, right? Yeah. And I think that's an exception. I think that Wired typically does a really good job of yeah. distilling things for a wider audience. Yeah. Um, but it's something that we should always strive toward. Yeah, that's a really great point. So, yeah, I mean, because some of the places you've written too, like mm-hmm. you can't just go and get a, a byline at Mother Jones, for mm-hmm. example unless you're really able to number one, comprehend complex topics, but number two, break those topics down into digestible bites. Um, <laughs> yes. Right. Much so. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll talk um, about that a bit. Yeah. Well, so I was at mother Jones for a year. Um, I did their editorial fellowship, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially half reporting and half fact checking. And this involved you move. Is this what, what got you to move to San Francisco? Um, well, I'll, or... I'll tell you the truth. The okay. reason that I moved to San Francisco is because my girlfriend at the time got a job over there. Okay. And I was kind of like, all right, well, cool. if I have, you know, cause I, I was very supportive. I was like, yeah, you got this job. You love this company. Um, it absolutely makes sense for you to go and I will go with you. But then I was like, I really need to find a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not just going to like go. I didn't know anyone else in San yeah. Francisco. Um, and then I got the mother Jones fellowship, which was really 
I mean, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, In some ways, your girlfriend at the time did mm -hmm. you a favor because of all the places to go get a job. Like San Francisco is a good place to go for like, it's just, a, it is a melting pot of just mm -hmm. densely populated, you know, brilliant people. Yeah. So like, not, it's not, not dense enough. <laughs> not, yeah. Well, yeah. that's. That is, that is, that is a, that is an unpacking that we I can know, do over think, another I, podcast. I was going to say, I think I, I put a, a gripe about housing in my, um, uh, pre-podcast interview. Oh but. yeah. I, I, um, I couldn't, it, something tells me we have like a subconscious conversation in our minds going right now where we couldn't agree more with each other. Um, so, so sorry. So, so you identify then at that point, you're like, okay, well mm -hmm. now I need to figure out how I'm going to get a job in San Francisco because mm -hmm. you were maybe going to have to pay an exorbitant amount of rent to live in a shoebox. Um, <laughs> so talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I applied for the mother Jones fellowship and I think it was October. Um, I think if I remember correctly, their deadline was like the beginning of October. And then there was an interview process that involved, um, a video interview, a basic research test to see if I was up to snuff as a beginner fact checker. Mm -hmm. um, which evidently I was because they gave me the offer on November 1st. And then I started nice. on, I believe December 4th. Um, they were quite accommodating. They allowed me to work remotely from Boston my first week so that I could like pack up my apartment and finish finals. Cause sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was the only, only fellow who was coming that directly from undergrad. Yeah. Um, which was, it was totally an insane experience and I really can't recommend doing that to mm -hmm. anybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I got there and on my first day in the office, um, my editor asked me like, how are things going? And I was like, Oh, you know, great. I'm still kind of wrapping things up. I have two final papers that I need to finish up like tonight. And she was like, okay, well, if there's anything that we can do, let me know. Wow. I was like, thanks, but there's really not like, I'm just going to go back to my Airbnb at five and yeah. crank stuff out and finish my degree. <laughs> You truly, uh, that's like another level beyond like, you didn't just hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. Like you were running in Boston and then like, <laughs> you were like somehow running on two treadmills at once. I, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what it felt like. And then, um, my girlfriend came over, um, a few weeks later. Um, she actually, she flew with me there and spent like the weekend during which we attended her company's holiday party moved me into my Airbnb, mm. found an apartment and signed a lease. <laughs> it was the most whirlwind month of my life. You packed a lot of memories into that one. I truly yeah. did. We were very lucky. I mean, we found a great apartment that was um, within budget and under rent control. So nice. very, very lucky Where? in San Francisco. Like in the heart of San Francisco in wow. Alamo Square. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Truly incredible. Um, Very rare. Yeah. And then, so I continued living in the Airbnb for a couple of weeks and then we officially moved into the apartment in January during which time she also started her job um, at a local tech company. And I continued in my fellowship until the end of November. Um, and at that point I had been interviewing a couple of places, but this thing kept happening for, and this went on for months, even after my fellowship ended where, and I'm not trying to tip my own horn. This is just what happened was I was a finalist and then they would pick somebody else over me and mm -hmm. then I'd be a finalist and they would pick somebody else over me. Cause yeah. I think that's just media. I mean, yeah. there are so many qualified journalists yeah. and not enough jobs. And yeah. I remember there was a really kind of despondent week. It must've, I think it was in January media folks will remember, mm -hmm. um, but there were just, several oh, yeah. huge layoffs that were announced and was this in 2018 kind of like oh my god was this uh yeah I think, yeah yeah i think it was december 2018 and like mike.com was fault like oh, if mike not yet was fall, out. yeah like, <laughs> like yeah. yeah 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 i know and i was in the midst of the job search and mm -hmm. i'm like yeah that's okay great so time. i literally have thousands of other more qualified journalists that i'm now competing with i mean this is my mindset at the time right um and it was rough, but I also got freelance work. Um, I, during that time, did some pretty in-depth fact-checking for Eater, for HuffPost, um, California Magazine, which is UC Berkeley's mm -hmm. alumni mag, 
um, and I think a couple of other places. I also, I did some really random but really rewarding journalistic work. Um, I was one of the first journalists to work on SIFT, um, which is an app. It's available on iOS right now. I do not think they have released the Android version yet, but it's called SIFT News Therapy, and their whole idea is to take these huge controversial topics like climate change, gun control, immigration, and take the reader on an interactive journey mm. that gives the history and context of this issue mm. and kind of gamifies it as well um, so that they're able to immerse themselves and actually get educated in a way that is brings them in right like it's not really meant to be just somebody lecturing at you it's meant to be really immersive and interactive and i wrote the healthcare series wow which is really great um and also really difficult because yeah. it was changing under my feet i mean um representative jayapal um literally introduced her medicare for all bill like as we were wrapping up final edits. And I was like, well, we have to include this somehow. Um, and we pulled it together, but that was a freelance project that I really enjoyed working on. Well, I just, um, for, for listeners, I just had to take my phone out, which I don't usually do during podcasts, but simply to look up SIFT and bookmark mm -hmm. it so that I can go down the rabbit hole later. That's, that's super cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, I also, like my very last month in San Francisco worked as a fact checker at Wired. Yeah. Um, it was technically a freelance position and that I was employed through a temp agency. Um, but it was essentially full time. And I worked on a couple of articles about the future of transportation, um, about the Syrian war and a couple other things. That's yeah. It was, yeah. it was really incredible. <laughs> There's um, so I have a couple follow-up questions before we, yeah. before we journey from San Francisco back to Boston. One is just generally about fact checking and like explaining that to me and to listeners, like the difference between and the importance in 2019, certainly <laughs> uh, in the in the uh, Trumponian fake news world we live mm -hmm. in, the importance of fact checking and like what that entails, and um, you know the, the the skills and sort of the requirements for sort of being a fact checker. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I want to dial it back and say first that there are two really sweeping categories of fact checking, and the first is. I think more pertaining to what you're saying with the Trump era and quote unquote fake news and all of that, which is the fact checking uh, statements that public figures are making. Mm -hmm. That's what, I mean, the Washington post fact check that they've had around for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. um, that's what they do. Um, that's what, um, what is his name? He's no longer at the Toronto star. It's either David Dale or Daniel Dale. His Twitter handle is ddale8, which I tells know. you how much I am on Well, did you hear me say dd? I, I'm I picturing it. Yeah. You know who yeah. I'm talking about. I know who about. you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, in any case, that's, yeah. that's what he does as well, is basically just assesses um, the statements made by public figures right. for truth and yeah. can provide context and nuance and necessary, and that's great. Um, but the other sipping category of fact-checking is... One that's been around for a long time. Unfortunately, there are not as many fact checkers as there once were, and they are usually employed by magazines. They are sometimes employed by radio stations. They are rarely employed by newspapers and digital outlets such as Boston. But as a fact checker, your job is to make sure that every single detail in the story is correct. And sometimes that is the spelling of a person's name. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is, okay, did the writer translate this legal document correctly? Um, and sometimes it's things like, what is the current distribution of the Western pond turtle in California? <laughs> I mean, it's really all over the place, yeah. um, which is lovely. But if you were to tell me, for example, um, like, I have a two-year-old daughter named Mila, Mila. Yeah. then I would have to check 
and uh, several things there. Yeah. I would have to check um, that your daughter is in fact two. Mm-hmm. And that rule required two things. One, checking her age with you and two, checking her birthday. Mm-hmm. Because if she turns three before we publish, mm-hmm. then the copy that I'm checking needs to say that she is three. Mm-hmm. I need to check that the spelling of her name is correct. Mm-hmm. I need to check that she is, in fact, your daughter, that her gender is correct. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all these sort of small details yeah. that go into every single sentence. Um it's a skill. It requires a lot of detail-oriented thinking. It requires having a little bit of a lawyerish mind, yeah. too, because a fact-checker's other job often is to make sure that things are legally bulletproof, right? Like, do we need to say we are attributing this to court documents? Probably. Do we need to introduce the word allegedly to this legally sensitive sentence, especially if the person has not been convicted? Yes, definitely. I can't believe the writer didn't do that already. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's what I did at Mother Jones, HuffPost, Eater, Wired, um, and a couple other places. I actually still do some fact-checking work on the side um, for a magazine called Bay Nature, which is basically an environmental and naturalist magazine um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Cool. I actually have more fact-checking questions, but I yeah. don't know. I don't. I don't know at which point I would we can lose. Do a whole podcast I, about fact-checking. Yeah, too, like but. if like uh, we have to have like um, maybe we'll start our own like media podcast and we can kind of keep keep going on fact-checking more. But that uh, that's really fascinating and like the, the example of like just fact-checking the sentence of mm-hmm. you know my daughter you know. Mila is two years old. It's like a really good way of describing it. Mm-hmm. Um, another story you mentioned you worked on, you just you just mentioned it, is the um, future transportation. Yes. Let's talk about it because <laughs> listeners are in Boston and, I mean, traffic's insane. I moved out to Beverly and I was super worried about getting into the city. Luckily, I have a commuter rail and mm-hmm. I get in, like, I can get into North Station in a half hour, actually dip off at Chelsea and take a bus to to Easty and I'm good. Um, there's plenty of times where I would not get in a car. We're starting scooters in some places. Uh, we got scooters out in Brookline, which is probably the worst place you could have started them. <laughs> Although there's some really good radio bits going on right now. 98.5 shout out to Tucker and Rich who basically once a month, they just, um, cause it's public record. They just play calls for people calling in, um, the Brookline police department about scooters. Uh, the amount of times that they just call up and report that scooters are wild turkeys is amazing. Are you serious? Um, I'll have to send you these, like this bit. It's like, it's a bit, but it's like literally just them showing what the citizens of Brooklyn, all the different ways they're complaining about scooters. Um, but transportation, future transportation, we have this strong migration of young people to urban areas. Um, more and more friends of my, I, I, my family married with a child and a dog. We've had one car for only seven years. I'd really prefer to keep it that way. Many of my friends don't own a car. Um, I know I'm like only talking about like personal transportation right now. And I'm sure like there's much more to it. So can you speak a bit to, you went deep down the rabbit hole of fact checking some, mm-hmm. some urban um, or some, some future transportation um, work at Wired. So I imagine there's, there's an, immen- an immense, um, knowledge that we can pull from right now. So do you mind sharing some of like the salient points you discovered that you feel like are most fascinating and perhaps sharing with folks, like what are some of the promising things that maybe we aren't seeing just yet that are going to start to impact a city like Boston? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and first I'll start by saying that what I fact checked at wired when it pertained to the future transportation, um, the issue that I was helping with, um, there was a whole package on future transportation that included, I think, five or six different stories. I fact-checked two of those. Yeah. One was about the future of flying cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one was pretty wonky, actually, but I, I was very into it because I'm a little bit of a transit <laughs> wonk myself, like I feel like many, many people are these days, which is great. Yeah. Um, about basically how city bus systems, and this is specifically in LA, but I think it applies to pretty much every major city, 
are not designed for short, quick trips, especially during the day. They're really just designed to go back and forth between work and home. I can attest um, to that. Yeah. yeah, and not so much like running around to the grocery store to pick up a kid, mm-hmm. um, you know, to go there's to a not, podcast appointment in the middle yeah, of the day. Like, there's, no short, <laughs> there's no short form agility, in the, especially really in L.A. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. My brother moved to L.A. quick sight, like first almost year of his time in L.A., didn't have a car and had to commute for work. And it was like, it, like very long linear tracks. And if you know anything about L.A. and how sprawling it is, mm-hmm. not all that different maybe in how Houston is sprawling it's very difficult to like make little deviations and get to many places you need to get to so people drive and yeah. everyone's in a car or they're now in, you know whether they're driving it or it's an uber or lyft they've commissioned yeah. or they're on the scooters or they're on scooters <laughs> which is a whole other thing which yes. easier to do on the west side not as easy to do in the rest of la mm-hmm. um so that's interesting so that was story number two and there were six uh, there were six total, but I only yeah. fact-checked those two. You fact-checked yes. those two. Interesting. And the, the, so the first one again. Flying cars. So what's the, and I'm like trying to jog my memory in the name. What's the flying car company out of Boston? Akamai. Okay. There's another one. There was another one back in like 2007. Really? Dating myself on my Boston tech days. <laughs> Fun fact, I met my wife at a Boston event in like 2011. Incredible. Um, See, everybody should come to our events. Come to the events. You'll find love. Um, <laughs> and if not, like you'll find uh, Rowan and I and, and we'll, we'll um, speak to you lovingly. Um, <laughs> interesting. So that that's, that's I, I, I want to look up those articles. And actually, I was, my co-producer, Jason Miracle, helped with some of the, like, I was like, oh, what questions should I ask? And he's like, oh, it'd be cool to ask what some of the articles that you like most um, that you've written or fact checked that, that you feel like, you know, would be worth sharing with people. And I want to include a few links mm-hmm. in the, in the, um, the questionnaire before we publish it. Yeah. I and, also, yeah. I misspoke um, yeah. earlier when you asked me about the flying car company out of Boston, yeah. I was yeah. thinking of Alakai. Okay. Not Akamai. Okay. So, so I know honest Alakai. mistake, yeah. but Alakai yeah. is the, um, they're go. working on hydrogen powered, yeah. um, flying vehicles and they're in yeah. Hopkinton. They're so, in Hopkinton, yeah. which makes sense. Yeah. They got some real estate to play with out there. Exactly. Have you been there? No, I haven't, but I have a friend who's actually from there. Field trip? <laughs> Let me know. Um, that'd be really cool. I've been to Hopkinton once. My my parents met some friends on a cruise and uh, I was like 12 and they came back from the cruise and they're like, we're going to a cookout in Hopkinton. And I grew up north of Boston. Mm-hmm. I just know it's really not like it's very far south um and like in the woods um so i imagine there's plenty of room to to fly cars cool um all right so what was it that drove you from san fran back to boston did like how how did you sync up with the american inno crew so i was familiar with boston before um i actually subscribed to the beat um Mm -hmm. for quite a while when i left for san francisco i canceled my subscription um, and then when I was getting ready to move back, I resubscribed and now I run it. So it's, it's a nice full circle. Um, but no, I, the thing about, I mean, this could again be a, a whole other podcast, but. So you were over San Francisco cause San Francisco sucks. Um, no, I, I, sorry. Have, that's just well, my opinion. Everybody. I'll, I'll always have very mixed feelings about <laughs> San Francisco. Um, and I had my, I had many different personal reasons for leaving, um, mm-hmm. And in most of them actually came back to the cost of living because you can say like, oh, the city's so expensive, but I think it's really difficult unless you have lived there to experience the reverberating effects, right? Yeah. Of how expensive it is. It sets back the progression of humans. In, in many humans who aren't of certain financial means. Yep. I mean, I only lived in San Francisco for 17 months. I'm going back later this week to visit. Um, and I only know a couple of people who are still there, Yeah. which is just insane. I mean, they, they left for, let's see, Santa Barbara, Washington, D.C., New York City, Sacramento. Yeah, almost nobody's in the Bay. The bummer about that is you're 
wildly impressive and accomplished and you you had to leave like maybe a little kicking and screaming because it's like damn it like it, this would be a cool place to be just mm-hmm. how you but that all said you're still in the exception the majority of american young people aren't as wildly accomplished and as impressive and at in their 20s as you are and so this is my problem with San Francisco. It's also, I mean, to a much smaller extent, it is my problem with some, <laughs> with even Boston. There's, it's, it, access is a problem. Oh yeah. Access is a problem. And that's my biggest, that's the biggest issue I have facing most all of the, you know, I think, it, I think it's creating a divide and, and, and you can tie back to most of the socioeconomic divide of our time and why the Trumps world got elected. It's, we're neglecting how in uh, how difficult it is for um, folks of a lower income class to go and participate in the tech-driven Boston labor market, which needs media and journalism. Which just it doesn't just mean like getting a computer science degree and being an engineer. Mm-hmm. Like there's all facets. It's of a whole that. ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one thing that I find really fascinating now, like sort of comparing the San Francisco ecosystem with the Boston ecosystem is talent is quite concentrated here in terms of like the colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. Um, but the capital is still so concentrated in California. Mm-hmm. I actually several weeks ago spoke to a founder who Um, just, I believe he just raised a seed round. Um, and he was talking about how difficult it was to get any money in Boston. He was like, I love Boston. I really don't want to leave, but I think I need to, if I'm going to make warm connections with venture capitalists and with people, you know, angel investors and whoever people who have money, then I have to go to San Francisco. He was basically packing his bags Mm -hmm. And then by almost a stroke of luck, a friend of his wrote him a check and he was able to stay in Boston. And that's crazy. People shouldn't feel like they have to leave their whole life behind just for fundraising. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. And and I I get a little bit of that from talking to some folks who are um, entrepreneurs or, or have now grown to become angel investors. Like we'll have a, podcast coming out soon with soon with Jason Burke. He's the chief strategy officer at clipped. Uh, he's a mentor and advisor at underscore VC mm-hmm. been an angel investor for a while since his, since an exit about eight years ago. I tend to hear and like Lucy Maffei mentioned this is over at Boston business journal. Now but at the time when I was talking to her, she was at Boston. Oh, mm-hmm. there's definitely in, in Clement, has a lot from tech stars mentioned this there's definitely a it seems like and from people who've experienced this is like lucy reported for TechCrunch in chicago npr in dc and then she was at boston oh now bbj here in boston it seems like mentors um and the mentor class is much hot like more likely to help the next generation of entrepreneurs here so we don't have a mentor problem but what you're bringing up is different. You're talking about a capital problem. Now yes. there's, there's VCs in town, um, you know, like Silicon Valley bank comes to mind. Um, but one thing I have heard is the VCs in Boston do tend to narrowly focus on like what Boston is absolutely strong at, you know, like, you know, biotech and biosciences comes to mind. Do you think they're more risk averse? More risk adverse. Um, I don't necessarily know if they're more risk adverse. I would say that they um, are benefiting. Where I was actually going to go with that tangent is I feel like there's some matured verticalized accelerators in that realm. So we talked to Chris Ilsley from North Shore Interventures, Mm -hmm. which just so happened to be, it's a half mile from the the house I, I got the suburbs. I'm like, Oh cool. There's a whole innovation economy on the North shore. Yep. Go figure. And, but it's, and this is both the gift, a gift and a curse. Cause Chris was talking about this on the podcast. They're, they're about to go to a 20,000 foot square space, multiple wet labs, like really just 
the type of science that's happening in Boston in general, as you kind of alluded to from some of your reporting, is is really like like nowhere else in the world. And so I think investors are very comfortable uh, knowing that fact and then having like a much, a very mature like North Shore Interventures. And there's many more in Cambridge and, and Cambridge adjacent. So I think that we have like a, I think we have a vertical problem. Like mm-hmm. I, I think, or, or I should say, maybe we have a horizontal problem where like there's a couple verticals that are really strong. Um, and then even like, Green Tech's got a nice like Greentown Labs and Union Square and some of the exits like you know I, I got the, I was grateful enough to work with Retroficiency back in the day which had a great exit like there's been some like really good like energy technology companies in 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 town but they're few and far between outside like you know the, you know I would like to think um, that there'd be more e-commerce startups here with like a Wayfair around you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure. And I know, and I think what you're striking into right now is something that like, you know, it's, I'm now compelled to sort of do a little more intentional discovery on my part to see, oh, is, is that in part the problem? Because I can, I know from talking to enough people that are, whether they're mentors, advisors, or they're acceler, you know, they're accelerating agents like Clem at Techstars, we'll go back to him. Techstars is technically a horizontal tech accelerator globally speaking and dominantly in North America, but all of their tech stars outposts, like we played is a startup out of the, we work in North station. And I was talking to the CEO the other day. Oh, Oh, our CEOs in town who, who, who I know you'll want to get together with. Let's get together for coffee. Sorry, Zach. I'm in Indianapolis because this is where tech stars is, uh, main focuses on e-commerce and sports. Interesting. So, and I haven't talked to Clem about this, but I'm like, really? <laughs> so like we play, like here we have like some, cause this is an interesting little, I'm a media tech guy and there's like sports innovation lab is another interesting company that's growing in that North station. We work, but really, so these companies want to accelerate and you have all the resources available here in Boston and you literally have the Techstars Boston, but you have to go to a Techstars Indianapolis to, to grow. And I, I get it to some extent, but in the digital world we live in, um, and the ability to collaborate on, like if there's some folks in other parts of the country that would help in the Techstars community to help these, you know, these companies grow in Boston, like by all means, make those connections to people that aren't here, but really people need to leave. Like I'm pretty sure Rob, like Rob has a family and would prefer to be in Boston. Right. But he had to go to Indianapolis for the summer. Um, so I'm kind of playing out some things I've learned, but through the, through a shifted lens that you've helped me reframe around the, not the right, like there's plenty of capital in Boston. Cause that like the reality is there's plenty of capital in Boston. Like if you look at, nationally speaking, but it's pretty concentrated on maybe too few verticals. And maybe that's, and that's like a city problem. And I don't know who, like, I don't know who drops a hammer on that and says, Hey, as a mandate, the dollars flowing to entrepreneurship needs to be more expansive. Uh, but maybe we just struck on something here. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I pre- appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's interesting because it, it, sometimes it feels like something has to give. Like San Francisco cannot sustain. It can't. No. Yeah, but but people keep going there. Yeah. <laughs> the cost of living keeps rising because the board of supervisors will not build housing, yeah. which drives me nuts. Um, yeah. Clearly, <laughs> but yeah, no. So it is it is kind of interesting. What we're going to be able to see. Um, I mean, we were talking a little bit before about highlighting innovation hubs that are not in the Bay area. And Boston is of course one of them. Boston is in fact one of the oldest, I think, cause Kendall square has been just transformative mm-hmm. and has been for God, like a century now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's but, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what draws me to Boston and his mission and all of right American on. and his mission. Yeah. Cause you know, yeah. we have, Inos, so to speak, in 13 different markets with North Texas Inno launching next month, actually, out of Dallas. The idea is really 
how do we champion local innovation? Mm -hmm. How do we highlight the small businesses that are driving the new tech economy? And how can we support ecosystems that are all over the U.S., right? I mean, Boston is the largest in a market. Chicago is the second largest. But we have presences in Tampa, Florida. Um, we have Richmond, Virginia. We have Austin, Texas, which is rapidly, rapidly mm -hmm. growing. I almost sometimes wish I were working there just to see what's going on. Yeah. But, yeah, it's. I, I think it's a really important mission. I yeah. do. And that's where our missions are so aligned. It's sort of like the importance of like the micro, like innovation community, sort of the, the storytelling aspect of it. And, you know, it's one, it's one thing to be shepherds of uncovering those stories and sharing them. And then I do think like, and this is the part where we can take more like offline and then, but to what we talked a bit about earlier, but then the importance of when shepherding those stories out to market, making sure they get to adjacent communities mm -hmm. and to the forgotten young people in whether it's Metro West or it's the Merrimack Valley or it's the North Shore, or it's the South Shore. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of people that don't know what Boston is and they don't know what Hub Week is. And they and they don't know that there's programs like Resilient Coders where they can learn to code. Like there's there's so many things um that are available for to help give Boston actually does a solid job of giving access. Boston does a good job of giving access to information that can help people get a little closer to new opportunities, new exciting opportunities, being a part of this like tech driven Boston labor market, which is a reflection of like the global tech driven mar labor market. And so that's kind of my hope for the Boston Speaks Up and Boston O partnership moving forward. And the idea of, connecting in some of those cities where, where we overlap too. Like we, I have a partner in Denver who's been a while since um, she has podcasted, but she's podcasted with the innovation community there. And I was like, Oh, there's, there's an inno Denver. Maybe we should, there talk, is. maybe we yeah. should talk about Colorado. I know. Yeah. Like maybe, yeah. Like maybe you could do like, you know, you could do Colorado or, or maybe do a Denver speaks up since Denver's her jam. But, uh, but she does know quite a few people in Boulder too. So maybe Colorado would be appropriate and on brand with what you guys are doing. So, um, this has been great. I know we're running, we're running up against time. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that like, I, like I, I, I would love to hear some of the particular and, and I'm going to try to connect this to what we we're just talking about too. Like here, like we're talking about Boston, maybe having like a venture capital issue with regards to what venture capitalists are willing to invest in, in the city. What's your call? Like, what would you, if you were speaking to VCs right now and in some ways you are, and we can certainly have some ways we can specifically make sure that they like. I'd love to get this in front of some folks. Like I mentioned SVB in particular, what would you say is a market that isn't commonly associated with Boston tech and Boston innovation that you feel like is, is already big or is rapidly growing and that people need to take more notice to. And you feel like Boston is uniquely suited from an engine, whether it's engineering talent or whatever. Um, but what are you particularly optimistic about going in the future that may surprise people here in the city? I feel good about clean tech and green tech. I mean, biotech is certainly, I think, Boston's biggest thing because we're able to collaborate with all the hospitals and great research institutions that are doing work on their own. Um, you mentioned Greentown Labs earlier, and there are other um, accelerators like Mass Challenge, I believe, has a clean tech sort of subdivision within their incubator. Um, I feel good about that, and... As we have read many times over, that's something where venture capitalists actually need to be investing more money. Um, green tech founders have lamented to the New York Times and others that they are not getting the capital that they need in order to move forward with projects that maybe they could save the world. Maybe they'll be flukes. That's always a risk with startups. 
but it's it's worth investment and they're capital intensive yeah mm-hmm. that's a good point like there's again being from the media and entertainment industry like i don't know if you're familiar with like ventures like vessel or victorious we're talking so like i just mentioned one of those two vessel or victorious we'll have to fact check after was like 75 million dollars of venture funding essentially to test if you could window premium youtube content and get youtuber uh youtube consumers to pay a premium to get premium youtube video early it did not work the entertainment industry just will write checks for ventures like just testing out models mm-hmm. like and, and obviously companies <laughs> movie like pass. yeah movie pass <laughs> there you go and like we'll run out. <laughs> netflix, netflix and, and in some ways it's taken like a netflix to disrupt a lot of things to maybe create you know the to compel more people to throw money but my point is there there's an industry like entertainment which i think we, we can all agree that the health of the planet is more important than the, anything the, else. than anything else yes so Yet we're scrutinizing the dollars go like way more heavily scrutinizing any potential dollars that would go to clean tech vis-a-vis like dollars that go to like a movie pass. And that's a problem. Uh, I don't know how we solve that, you know? <laughs> well, the, I mean, the world's problems are largely caused by a failure of distribution systems. So this is nothing new. No, it isn't. Rowan, this has been really fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to end on, no. a, on such no. a low note. <laughs> no, this has been really fun, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to let it end there. Um, what's your been your favorite thing to do in Boston? Like in just, like just as a person, or yeah, just like this. You know, and we're about to go into fall. You mentioned how much mm-hmm. you love those I those do. fall leaves changing. Is it? But you know, any fun like what's you know any fun summer activities or things planned while the days are still a little warmer and sunnier. When I came back here, before when I was living here, I, I always lived sort of up in the Fenway area, um, northeastern, of course, and then off campus as well. Um, and when I came back here, I, I've been living in Jamaica Plain, and I love just walking around on Center Street and checking out all the little shops and then walking over to Jamaica Pond. And I'm a very big walk and talker, so I'll call my friends, I'll call my mom and be like, hey, what are you up to? I, I feel, you know, maybe like I am an anomaly for people in their 20s. I'll just call you. Um, sometimes I think people are a little bit startled by that. You and me both. <laughs> I love doing that. I love mm-hmm. I love the walk and talk. I love not unplanned phone calls to friends, especially like college friends I haven't talked to in a while or if I get a little time. Mm-hmm. I love describing to people where I'm walking and getting like, I'm walking down New... Like the other day, I was, my part, business partner was in town. I'm on Newberry Street and I... I uh, had to catch up with a partner out in Seattle and I was meeting people in Fort Point. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that you kind of just described it. And it's so walkable, Boston. So I like walked from the back bay to Fort Point. It's a small city it's in awesome. reality. Yeah. Like, it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, public transit can get you around, but when mm-hmm. you can't, when the walking is nice. Uh, cool. Well, maybe we'll walk and talk and continue some of these, uh, these ideas and some of the ideas that we have for Boston. Oh, Boston speaks up listeners get ready. Cause I think Rowan and I are going to be working on, on some things to, to activate the, the studio space we have here in, in East Boston in the future. I think, I think Boston speaks up is overdue for an event. Boston will puts on really fun events. It's Bo- true. Boston O Fest was, was awesome. Um, but yeah, this has been a blast. I really appreciate you coming, coming to the Easty shipyard to hang out with us. <laughs> well, thanks so yeah. much for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers. Take care of Boston. <laughs> <laughs>